So Revelation chapter 20. Um, you know, as I always like to say, whenever we look at Revelation, uh, it's, it's probably nice to imagine it and try to maybe imagine it in your minds as it's being read aloud. So uh, just keep that in mind. As I read it, just think about the, the imagery and imagine it in your minds. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding on in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees a dragon, that ancient serpent, who is a devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them were thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a word of the Lord. <clears throat> All right, let me, uh, let me pray for us and uh, we'll get started. God, we thank you for this word. And uh, we, we do pray, God, that you would help us to see it in more ways than one. Uh, not just to see it uh, from our eyes and our imagination, not just to see words on a text, but um, may the Holy Spirit uh, help us to imagine uh, these things that are uh, taking place in the spiritual realm and to know the um, the ultimate power and the victory that comes in Christ. And perhaps more than ever, um, or, at, or certainly at least in this season of life, uh, it's something that we need to uh, hold on to and draw hope from. So help us to um, you know, long for this hope and feel this hope today as we hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> So good morning, everybody. Today is Palm Sunday, and um, you know Palm Sunday is usually the the Sunday that starts off the Passion Week, uh, which will lead to next Sunday, Easter Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the day when Jesus he enters into Jerusalem and he's riding on a donkey. And the reason why it's called Palm Sunday is because when Jesus does that, people are waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. 
Hosanna in the highest. And the irony of that passage is that when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, you know, he's supposed to be entering as his triumphant king, but the path to triumph uh, comes ultimately by way of a cross. And I imagine those who were shouting Hosanna at the time, they were expecting a different kind of king to triumph in a different kind of way. They thought that Jesus would be a king like David, who would transform Israel into this powerful political kingdom like in the days of David. But ultimately, that wasn't what Jesus' intention was. Now, <clears throat> we've also been going through the book of Revelation. And, you know, believe it or not, but the themes in Revelation are very much in line with the theme of Palm Sunday, though from a very different vantage point. You know, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, it is from the vantage point of his earthly ministry. And so Jesus' kingship is understood from the perspective of he is the humble king. He is the one who came to die upon a cross because it's only through his death and resurrection that the kingdom of God would come and Jesus would establish his rule and reign on earth. But the book of Revelation, it, it actually gives us a, a cosmic vantage point where now Jesus, and this is from Revelation chapter 19, last week's passage, Jesus comes riding on a white horse and he comes with a sword in his mouth, ready to vanquish what Paul calls the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And so whereas it appears as though Jesus's work is very peaceful, and you might even say passive, because he doesn't um, take up the sword and resist the cross, but he allows death to come to him and overtake him. Uh, we find out in the book of Revelation that, spiritually speaking, it wasn't actually very peaceful or passive at all. Jesus is one who is shown to go into battle, to ride into battle on this white horse with fire in his eyes and a sharp sword from his mouth. And that was a picture that we saw in the previous chapter. And even though it's a stark contrast to the picture that we get in, uh, in the Gospels of Palm Sunday, they actually depict the same Jesus, the same king with the same outcome. Now, the passage that we're going to look at today uh, continues, or uh, maybe I should say it repeats the similar themes that we've been looking at. However, the, the first part of Revelation 20 uh, I should let you know, has, has actually been a topic of uh, debate, and so much has been written on it. And if you look in the commentaries, um, uh, they, they all have to like mention this because it's like everywhere. Uh, so at least for those who like to study theology in terms of you know, what we should expect to happen at the end of history, uh, maybe you're familiar with the first part of this passage. And the debate essentially surrounds uh, the thousand-year period, or what's called the millennium, where Satan is bound. And and I really wrestled with, uh, should I spend some time looking at the different views and looking at this debate? Because I don't think I've ever talked about it in all my years here at Good News. And, you know, um, I guess part of me thought, well, if I don't talk about it here, then I'll probably never talk about it. And I also thought, you know, some people might find this kind of stuff interesting because uh, it, it dis dissects a little bit of the details about what we might expect to happen in the future. And I think people are interested in the future. So uh, what I'm going to try to do is I'll, I'll try to weave it through, but I'm, I'm not going to dwell on it or go through uh, all the details about it because there is a bigger picture that we need to pay attention to. And so first, what I want you to do is just visualize what John sees here because it is quite powerful. John saw an angel coming down from heaven. He has a key to the bottomless pit in his hand, right, with this great chain. And keys, of course, in uh, the book of Revelation, and I'll probably even say in the Bible as a whole, keys represent like some kind of authority. We saw this in, uh, in chapter one. Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. And what that signifies is he has authority over death. 
in chapter three, Jesus holds the key of David, which he uses to ultimately protect the church. And here, the key that Jesus holds is that same key over death and Hades. It tells us that Jesus has authority over even the demonic realm. And with that authority, Jesus seizes Satan, he binds him for a thousand years, and then he throws him into the pit, shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until those thousand years were ended. I don't know if you ever saw like a wrestling match. Um, and I don't mean like WWF wrestling. I mean like actual wrestling, like in the Olympics. Uh, but uh, have you ever seen a, a wrestling match and maybe one person was uh, significantly stronger than the other person? One person dominated more than the other person. And then you have the, the stronger wrestler just, just kind of does one move and pins the weaker wrestler and basically has his way with him. And that's, that's basically the picture of what Jesus is doing here to Satan when he binds him. It is as if Jesus is having his way with Satan because... He is that much more powerful, that much more in authority, uh, that much stronger than Satan. And he throws him into the bottomless pit. Now, I know, I think for some of us, you know, thinking about things like Satan and thinking about demons, it, it can freak us out a little bit um, because it's maybe not something we're used to or, or there's, there's a certain fear that comes associated with uh, those types of things. But uh, I think from this picture, uh, it's telling us we should never be afraid of Satan. We should never be afraid of the devil because Satan is like that weak wrestler that Jesus pins down and restrains so that he has no real power or authority. And especially compared to the power and authority that Jesus has. Now, there's a place in Matthew 12 where uh, Jesus, he heals a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute. And the Pharisees, they're thinking, you know, Jesus is doing this by the power of Beelzebul, uh, the prince of demons. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he responds to the Pharisee, and he says this, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And in that illustration, Satan is the strong man, and Jesus is the one who enters into the strong man's house and plunders his goods. Now, I know it's strange to think of Jesus as the one being the plunderer here, and it's strange to think of Satan as being the strong man here. But the point of the passage is, if Jesus has bound the strong man, then what it means is the kingdom of God has come. And the fact that the kingdom have, of God has come means that uh, it comes with power and authority. That's the reason Jesus is able to heal demon oppressed man, this demon oppressed man who is blind and mute. And that's the reason all these uh, healings and miracles and exorcisms can take place. It is because the kingdom of God has come. The strong man has been bound. Satan has been bound. And so now we come back to Revelation 20 and it talks about how Satan has been bound for a thousand years. And by now you probably recognize that numbers in Revelation are not meant to be literal, but it's probably talking about a period of time where Satan's power is going to be restrained because Jesus has brought the kingdom of God, which means his rule and his reign has already started. It's already begun. And so there is this already but not yet dimension to that reign. And even though the kingdom has already come, it has not yet come fully. And that's why there can simultaneously be genuine fruitfulness wrought by the Holy Spirit alongside with the reality of sin. Now, uh, the question uh, regarding the millennium, this thousand year uh, reign of Christ, uh, the question that people have is like, 
So when does this happen, right? When does this occur? Is it something that happens in the future or is it something that has already happened? And that is where some of this debate regarding uh, the millennium takes place. And I'll just spend a few minutes outlining some of the uh, differences, um, but I won't get too detailed because the differences are not super important. But basically there's three views, three perspectives, and they're called premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And I have a graphic uh, to share to make it a little bit easier to track because I think if I just talk about it, uh, it's not something that uh, you'll, you'll be able to necessarily follow along with. So here's, here's a graphic and uh, hopefully you can see it. Uh, <clears throat> now, basically all three views, you know, believe in very similar things in terms of the bigger picture that the church age begins with the arrival of the Holy Spirit after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The first view, the premillennial view, uh, they would say what's going to happen is that the church is going to be uh, raptured. Um, and, you know, there's like nuances within each view. So even within each view, there's uh, different views. But basically, the church will be raptured either before, during, or after uh, a period of tribulation. And that means uh, Christians will be taken up to heaven at the end of the church age and afterwards jesus will return with the army of those who have been raptured for either and you see here right this millennium period right this is when the church will be raptured either here here or here uh jesus will return and then you'll have this thousand year reign of jesus christ and after that millennium period that's when uh, unbelievers will be judged and part of the reasoning for ordering things in that way uh part of it stems from uh, an approach to interpreting the book of Revelation more literally, where, you know, in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, right, Jesus comes with the armies of heaven. And then in Revelation 20, you have uh, the thousand year reign. And so they look at those two things as happening in sequential order rather than uh, the recapitulation of the, the same event. The, the second view is the post-millennial view. And, uh, you know, the post-millennial and both amillennial view, I think, would generally say the period of tribulation is not something that is distinct from the church age, but that the church age is uh, in a period of tribulation. And that means that there's going to be persecution for the church because Satan wants to attack the church. But post-millennials would look at the millennium as something that's going to happen towards the end of the church age. And if uh, that is true, then there's kind of this more optimistic uh, view towards the future that uh, as Jesus establishes his reign in the thousand year, in the millennium, uh, right before his return, then the expectation is that society, um, or not necessarily, I don't know why it says society progressively improves, but basically things will get better and better and better for the church because Jesus is establishing his reign. And I, I guess because of that, Jesus establishing his reign on earth, things will actually get better and better and better on earth as well. And so uh, as they look to, towards the future, uh, they, they expect this golden age of the church to happen uh, leading up to the second coming of Jesus, where then a uh, majority of people will become or be believers here on earth. Uh, the third view is the amillennial view. And that's actually the perspective that um, I hold and the perspective that I've been preaching from in this series. And it looks at the age of the church and says this, that the millennium is something that has already begun. So differing from the post-millennial view where millennium's here, basically this entire period is uh, the millennium period. 
And so we are living in the millennium period and the kingdom of God has already come and Jesus has already begun to rule and reign uh, over Satan. This is the age where uh, people of all nations are going to come to faith in Christ because Jesus has inaugurated his rule and reign on earth. And when Jesus gives a great commission, one of the things he says is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And the reason why disciples can be made of all nations is because what Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so if all nations outside of Israel were deceived and in bondage to Satan prior to the coming of Jesus, then this is the age where all nations have now been released from that bondage because Satan has been bound. Uh, none of us here, I believe, are, are Jewish which means that we are part of the Gentile nations, right? Uh, but yet we are believers. Uh, we know Jesus. We have faith in Jesus. We are saved by Jesus. Why? Because uh, we're in an age where Satan has been bound. And therefore, the gospel's efficacy to the nations demonstrates that we are living in a millennium where the reign and rule of Jesus Christ has begun. So uh, let me stop sharing my screen now. Uh, that's basically the three main perspectives about what people expect to happen, uh, I guess, at the end of the world. And, um, you know, at least for Reformed uh, people, you're going to find a mixture of people holding on to post-millennial and amillennial views. And uh, the differences, I don't think, are super significant. Uh, I was being examined many, 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 many years ago uh, for ordination. And this was when uh, I was part of the, the PCA. And uh, as I was being examined, someone asked, uh, well, what difference does it make if you hold one of these views? And the answer I gave was this, you know, well, I guess depending on which view you espouse, you might either be more optimistic or not as optimistic about the future with respect to the church on earth. If you're a post-millennialist, then you're going to think things will get better and better and better, and you'll have more optimism about the world. Uh, if you're a millennialist, you won't be uh, necessarily, you won't necessarily be pessimistic, but you won't be as optimistic. And, uh, you know, of course, based on other passages, you might even expect greater persecution and apostasy to happen towards the end before the return of Jesus. But at the end of the day, nobody really knows what the end of the world is going to look like exactly before Jesus returns. And the main point is, the only thing we know is uh, nobody knows when Jesus will return. And no matter which view we hold, we, we have to be ready, right? We have to be ready for his return. Uh, personally, I'm inclined to believe that there will be a simultaneous, um, there will simultaneously be a lot of fruits where people will come to Jesus Christ during the age of the church, which I think has happened, but there will also simultaneously be a lot of persecution and apostasy within the church. My expectation is both will happen simultaneously, and I guess an example of that would be in places like uh, China and Iran, and despite persecution from the state institutions, many in these uh, nations are coming to faith in Christ, and sometimes at alarmingly high numbers, at rapid numbers. And so even in that, you can see simultaneously the attempt of Satan to thwart the church through these state institutions, right, through the beasts is what we saw in the book of Revelation, while also seeing the spiritual fruit of people turning to Jesus in faith and repentance. And I would say that's happening because two things are true. Satan has been bound, and Jesus has begun to establish his rule here on earth earth. All right, <clears throat> that's the teaching portion. Now, as we move on, uh, I think one of my old professors, uh, you know, he wrote a book on uh, the book of Revelation. I think he says it best with respect to this. He says, the major point is that Satan will finally be defeated 
And then even before that time, God takes care of his saints and gives them enjoyment of the benefits of his triumphant rule. And this assurance should comfort us, whatever our position on the millennial. And I think that's a great point. And it's what we should take away from this passage. Satan has been bound and Jesus has begun to exercise his power and authority. And that should be a great encouragement to the church. After that thousand year period is over, the, the passage says Satan will be released from his prison and a great war breaks out. And when we looked at the seven bowls of God's wrath, after the sixth angel poured out the sixth bowl uh, and before the seventh bowl was poured out, there was a great war called Armageddon. Uh, I think that war takes place again in this chapter. It also took place actually in the previous chapter. I think it's a recapitulation of the same war, this final war, this final battle that will take place where Satan will have one last opportunity to inflict damage upon God's people. And so it's very possible that before the return of Jesus, Satan will not be restrained anymore and we will see great persecution and apostasy. And if you read Second uh, Thessalonians 2, uh, there's actually a lot of parallels to that. Uh, what Paul says and to what Revelation says. Uh, and I think that's what Paul seems to be saying when he talks about the man of lawlessness. Paul talks about how the man of lawlessness is being restrained until the time comes for that man to be revealed. And then Paul says, Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. So there's a lot of parallel to what Paul says there and what Revelation seems to reveal to us here. Now, it's hard to know, again, what that will ultimately look like. But the point is this. Things will not turn out well for Satan. And even though, um, I guess, in our experiences and with our eyes, it could seem like things are uh, really bad. But in the end, Satan will be defeated. He will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And back into the simple message of Revelation, if we lose our, our place and uh, we need an anchor, what is the book of Revelation about? Very simple. It's about Jesus wins, right? That's the message of Revelation. Jesus wins. Okay. Now, what I'm going to say next might seem like a weird left turn, <laughs> but I think it's related. And uh, to be quite honest, it's been something that's been on my mind. So uh, I do want to share it. And it, you know, it's been on my mind because of the increased attention of racism towards uh, Asian Americans. And I'm sure for many of you too, uh, these things have been on your mind. You know, there, there's a tension that I've been thinking about, and it's between what the Bible says about uh, how if, if you're a believer, you're uh, more than a conqueror through Jesus who, who loves us, right? That's what it's, Paul says in Romans 8. Uh, so there is a sense in which we are victors. We are more than conquerors. And uh, the tension between that and the tension between the experience of injustice the experience of being recipients of the sin of others. And as I've been thinking about that tension, uh, I think more, more and more I am convinced it, it is really important and crucial to maintain that tension. Um, if we try to relieve that tension by focusing solely on the fact that, hey, we are more than conquerors, then the danger is we can easily gloss over the, the pain of injustice. And to be clear, of course, there are real victims uh, of injustice. The Asian women who were murdered in Atlanta were victims of injustice. Uh, anyone who's been on the uh, receiving end of any kind of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, is a victim of injustice. Uh, even globally, the Uyghurs in China 
are victims of injustice. There is just so much that is wrong with the world. And the outcome or the result of that is people in this world, many, 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 many people in this world will be victims of injustice. And so for believers, saying that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus is true, but I do think we can get there too quickly and gloss over uh, the pain of injustice and uh, you know, look it over too quickly. On the other hand, if you only focus on the pain and um, if that leads you to kind of adopt this uh, victim mentality, then uh, we can get trapped in this joyless kind of bondage where you, you become hopeless. Uh, you lose hope and uh, you never live out the victory that Christ has secured for us, right? So these two things are held in tension and it may not easy to be, it may not be easy to hold those two things in, in tension, but I think it's crucial to hold those two things in tension. And <clears throat> I guess I was like trying to think about an illustration that might, um, I don't know, illustrate this dynamic. And what I thought about uh, was this, it's a, it's a little bit like being on a winning basketball team uh, the Lakers won the, the last championship, so I'll use them as an example. Uh, it's like you're in the fourth quarter of the deciding game in the playoffs, and uh, you're so far in the lead that it's inevitable your team is going to be the victors. Your team will win. And so you start to feel like, you know, the victory of being on that team. You start to feel like a champion, and you see the time ticking down, and it's like, yes, I'm finally a winner. All that hard work, I'm finally a winner. Uh, but then during the course of that game, during the course of that fourth quarter, someone fouls you, right? Someone fouls you hard and it hurts. Being on the winning team doesn't mean that the foul didn't hurt. It doesn't even mean that you don't try to draw attention to the fact that you were fouled because being fouled was wrong. You may even be angry in the moment because that foul was not only painful, but maybe you thought it was unnecessary. Uh, but in spite of the pain of the foul, you still realize you're on the winning team. And therefore, there is a sense in which you still anticipate the joy of that victory. I wonder, maybe that's the tension uh, believers who experience fouls in this world need to live in. Uh, there will be times where we will be fouled because the world is painful. And we should cry foul when we've been fouled because it's not right. But at the same time, uh, the foul doesn't get to define us. We aren't known as the player who got fouled, but we are known as the player on the championship team, right? Revelation shows us that we are on the winning team because Jesus is victorious over all evil, all sin, and all death. Grieve the foul, but grieve with hope because of the victory of Christ. Uh, sometimes I think the experts in hope are the ones who have suffered much because the ones who have suffered much, they are the ones who could have lost hope um, the easiest, and yet they figured out how to hold on to hope and to make it through their hardship or their suffering. And if you look at those who've been on the receiving end of injustice, they actually oftentimes point to the victory of Christ for their hope. And, you know, let me give you two examples of this. Um, you know, the churches in South Africa were very inspired by the book of Revelation during their struggles, decades of struggle against apartheid. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu's sermons during apartheid, a lot of them were uh, recorded or uh, written down. And uh, if you look at a lot of his sermons, at least during a particular decade, oftentimes he would point to the victory of God. So let me read uh, one excerpt. Uh, 
This is what Desmond Tutu says in a sermon. He says, I am a bishop in the church of God. I am 51 years old, yet I don't have a vote. An 18-year-old, through a wonder of biological irrelevance, white skin is able to vote. They can remove Desmond Tutu. They can end the South African Council of Churches. But the church of God goes on. The government must know that the church is not frightened of any earthly power. More are for us than can ever be against us. A vast throng no one could ever count from every nation and every tribe standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white and bearing palms in their hands, shout together, victory to our God. We join with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. Uh, you see the language of Revelation there in uh, Desmond Tutu's sermon uh, in a period of time um, of apartheid in South Africa. Let me give you a second example. Uh, there's a woman named Rachel Den Hollander, and I think, mm, you know, she's pretty famous, so I would imagine a lot of you know who she is, but just in case you don't, uh, she, she wrote a book called What is a Girl Worth? And uh, the reason she became well known is because she was the first person to come forward and expose the abuse of Larry Nasser and the subsequent cover-up by USA Gymnastics. And when she um, writes in her book, she, she talks about, you know, sending that initial email to the Indianapolis Star who was doing an investigation on Larry Nasser. Uh, she, um, you know, she's kind of recording her thoughts as between each line of the email she sent. And she recognizes, if I send this, it can potentially turn my life upside down and I may still not get justice at the end of it. But she has conviction and she says it's the right thing to do. And so she hits send, sends the email, the story gets published. Next three years of her life is overtaken by the story and the trial of Larry Nasser. Since then, she's become uh, an advocate of survivors of abuse and um, I was like, you know, watching um, uh, these YouTube videos and she's being interviewed and different things. And, you know, one thing she said caught my attention. Uh, she said, and she's a Christian believer. So she says, um, when she walks with people who've been abused and then on the receiving end of injustice, when she opens scripture with them, the first thing she opens is the book of Revelation. Can you believe it, right? That's the first thing she opens with survivors of abuse. She shows them, this is how Jesus will come back. This is how Jesus will deal with the evil that you have seen firsthand and the sin that you have been on the receiving end of. And in spite of the evil that you have endured, this is also the victory that Jesus will give you in the end. And she says, you know, not that she's against things like forgiveness, but she says, you know, too many times um, with victims, you jump too quickly to passages of forgiveness. But she says what they need to know, they need hope. And what they need to know is that Jesus will be victorious over this horrific evil in the end. And that's where uh, she tries to encourage them and give them hope. And when she talks about her abuse, you know, it's certainly a part of her story, but it's also very clear it doesn't get to define who she is. Um, what, as she's going through this process, she had to remember, you know, her ultimate hope, it couldn't be in the fact, uh, in the U.S. legal system and in Larry Nasser's conviction and his imprisonment. That couldn't be, that's something that she longed for or wanted, but it couldn't be her ultimate hope because if it didn't happen, she would be destroyed. 
Her hope ultimately had to be in the victory of Christ and the fulfillment of perfect justice that will take place in this final judgment. Larry Nasser, he uh, was sentenced uh, to many, many years in prison. He was sentenced on January 2018. In July 2018, Rachel and her husband, they gave birth to their fourth child, their third daughter. And you know what they named her? They named her Alora. What does Alora mean? Alora means God gives the victory. Uh, we're, we're almost done through the book of Revelation. And I don't know if you've grown tired of hearing the same themes over and over again uh, of justice, judgment, final judgment, the victory of God. I hope you never grow tired of it. And especially if, uh, uh, you know, if you are, and I think many of us are kind of processing some of the things that have been happening in the past year, uh, especially with respect to racism. Um, uh, it would be very easy to fall into a place of hopelessness and despair, to get trapped into this cycle of anger and to be in bondage, um, ultimately. I think we can learn from a lot of people who've suffered a lot of injustice. Um, you know, don't gloss over the experience of it and the pain of it, but at the same time, hold on to the other side. Jesus is our victory. Um, he guarantees our victory. We are on the winning team because Jesus is the one who uh, is victorious. And hold on to that and hope in that. And you know, no matter what happens, and I'm sure bad stuff will continue to happen. Um, I'm sure um, we will all go through different experiences of the pain of things that are not fair. Uh, but in the end, um, know this, Christ will achieve the victory, and that means something. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, the power of Jesus. And, you know, it's a stark contrast to the typical picture we get on Palm Sunday of Jesus um, riding in on a, a donkey and Jesus riding in humility into Jerusalem and Jesus kind of um, uh, being silent as he's led to the slaughter. But God, we don't want to mistake that for passivity or weakness. But what you show us through the cross is um, that was actually great power and strength, that in that Satan was bound, that in that um, the kingdom of God has come and Jesus has begun to assert his rule and reign in this world uh, by the power of his might. And that because of that, there is great power and authority. We thank you for the book of Revelation that gives us a, a picture of that, of Jesus riding in on a white horse, of Jesus the one binding the strong man, of Jesus the one throwing Satan into this bottomless pit, of Jesus the one who executes final defeat of Satan and throws him into this lake of fire. And we pray that um, the power of who Jesus is and the victory and the strength of his might would be something that would give us hope. It would be something that would give us joy. It would be something that gives us delight. Uh, we pray, God, that um, this picture of your word given to us in the book of Revelation uh, would be a strength to us and would be something that um, we can rejoice in each and every day in spite of the sin, the injustice, 
uh, the evil that we see and experience in this world. In Jesus' name we pray.